Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and a contributor in many places, where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up and get all of my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link, or you can use the links in the show notes, which are available at any time by clicking on them for this or any episode. And finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's great, but it'd be better for the show if you went to iTunes, Google Play, Amazon Music, or wherever you're getting those podcasts and leave a review. Those five-star ratings help new listeners and readers like you find us, and I always look forward to reading them. And if you can't leave a review, sharing the podcast with others is usually how we grow anyway, and so that is always greatly appreciated. In this week's show, we're going to cover the latest COVID-19 numbers and sort of do a COVID update show, just walking through everything and sort of analyzing it from a more data-specific perspective, since that's very much lacking when you're looking at any of the mainstream coverage. Uh, We're going to talk through some of the summer surge lessons that we've had as we're going through, or about to enter, I should say, the fall and winter surge that is coming up. And then we'll talk through some of the fallout of the pandemic so far and some of the the, the things we're beginning to learn now is, is some of these numbers are starting to lead into larger storylines. Uh, and then after that, in the light item segment, we're going to take a look back at 13 years ago, uh, this time in 2008. This was the right around in the period of time where we were entering into the true depths of the 2008 recession, right in the middle of the presidential election. So I thought... Um, What we could highlight for this period, for this time, is the speech that George W. Bush gave 13 years ago talking about trying to reassure people at that time. I think it's sort of interesting to go back and listen to that speech uh, just with what we know now, all the things that have come in those 13 years since. You know, we've had three three new presidents, other than Bush, three presidents come through now that have dealt with all the, the after effects of that. So it's sort of an interesting look back to hear that speech know what was going on then, and and sort of look at how everything passed through for that time. So that is the agenda for today's show, so we can jump right in. So like I normally do with, with the, any COVID update episode is I like to go through the very basic numbers. And so uh, your, your basic stats and your basic just headline numbers across all the important categories. So again, uh, testing continues to be an unreliable indicator of really anything, and that is because we have shortages nationwide. There's a lot of reasons for that, but and some of that is unfortunately government regulation. But um, the testing issues kind of color our capacity to know exactly how many cases we have at any given time, and then also exactly how many how many true positives that we are having at a given time, just because we have so many take-home tests now that don't get reported into a central authority, which is fine. It's better for people to get tested, but it also means we're not getting an accurate picture of what's happening underneath the surface. Um, But given that, it looks like cases peaked at around 170,000 per day at the beginning of September. I had an episode, you know, a few weeks back where we talked about a potential peak at the beginning of September. It looks like that is what has occurred. And now as we're leaving the month, we've gone from 170,000 per day to around 100,000 per day. 
And as we enter October, it looks like if thing, if trend lines continue, you would expect that to fall well below 100,000 cases per day. Uh, during the the early or the early the late spring, early summer, when we didn't have a surge anywhere in the country, things fell to around 30 to 40,000 nationally. So that would be a nice place to settle back into. I don't know that we're going to get there just because we're heading into the winter and fall period now. But even though the case numbers may not be a great indicator of where we are, because we don't know if that's actually a true, you know, 100,000, there could be more, there could be less, depending on what the tests are saying. Hospitalizations definitely peaked at the first of the month at around 94,000 nationally. And now they're around 77,000 and falling according to CDC data. And I know those hospitalization numbers are going to be more accurate just because a hospital is going to report what's happening regardless of what's happening because that's going to give you that hard look of whatever's going on with COVID. If it's really bad, you're going to have more hospitalizations. If you Even if you've got a ton of cases, if your hospitalizations aren't going up, that's going to tell you something too. So right now our hospitalizations have fallen. They peaked at around 94. They're around 77,000 now and falling. So that is good news there. That suggests that we're seeing less pressure on the healthcare system. Um, and along with that, uh, deaths are, are, are lagging these metrics a bit, which is to be expected. Um, those topped out at around 1,800 a day during the first part of the month. Uh, they've only fallen to around 1,500 a day now in the averages, seven-day average specifically. So um, they're dropping. They're not as high as they were, but they still have more room to fall since we haven't seen you know, that sort of ski slope dis- decline that you see once things really start to get falling down. So they're dropping, still out of room there. So there's there's some lag in that data that where that's going to have to be caught up here. So all all those main, you know, those main numbers there, they are still elevated, but they are trending largely just on a national basis. And, you know, we've got a lot of regional areas that have different things happening in them, but nationally you're seeing things trend in the right direction. And along with that, vaccines also continue trending in the right direction. So right now, 55% of the entire population is fully vaccinated. 64% of the entire population, which includes all ages of people, um, are partially vaccinated. So 64% partial, 55% full. Uh, These numbers are going to stay lower until we get emergency use approval for vaccines to apply to children. Uh, Right now, it looks like Pfizer is ready to go on kids as young as five. Moderna should follow pretty closely after that. Their data has looked good on that front. I don't know if we'll get a Johnson & Johnson version of this just because they're they're a couple months behind the others on this thing just due to the timeline involved here. So, uh, you know, it's going to be a little bit slower to, to really dive into and cut into that 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 full entire population number. But with we, hopefully we will start getting out some some child vaccines here that will get a broader base of the country fully vaccinated, which will slow down the spread of the virus even more. Um, And of course, those child vaccines are going to depend fully on the Biden administration approving them quickly, hopefully over the next few weeks, because you would like to have this in before the winter surge really takes over. But there's no guarantee that that will take place. So the Biden administration has proven to be pretty slow on these things. As as, you know, a, a good example are these booster shots, which they, they have fought back and forth 
I generally agree with what they've done here, but they have taken the most painful course to get there with all the mixed messages, people hearing one thing and then the other, and never knowing the rules. Uh, it's it's really been a mess. I think they ended up at the right place, but they, they sure took the hardest way to get there, and I don't think they're helping out their case any here. Um, but with that said, if you look only at the adult populations, uh, and that's really those who can get one, so... At this point, you're, you're, you're counting that as the 12, a, 12 years old and up category. 65% of those 12 and up are now fully vaccinated, and 75% of that population is now partially vaccinated. So of the cohort who can get vaccines, three out of four Americans have had at least one shot, and that's one Pfizer or one Moderna shot of some form. So you would expect that number to continue crawling up, um, you know, there, there's always that lag between get your first shot and the second shot. So hopefully that picks up here and we see, you know, the full vaccination rate get closer and closer to that 75%. That would be really, really great to see. Um, but you're looking at pretty good, decent numbers there in the adult or adult population. Uh, we also have great vaccination numbers continuing for those 65 and up. 83% of those 65 years old and older in that cohort, they are fully vaccinated, and 93.5% are partially vaccinated. So we we are actually much higher in the partial vaccination for this age cohort than I ever thought we would get. I thought we would pretty much stick at around the 85 to 90% range, and we've pushed higher there. Um, this is very good because this is where the bulk of our deaths have occurred. Um the reason that Delta has not been quite as bad on the death front is because you have such higher vaccination numbers in this cohort. They cannot um, face quite as bad of outcomes as we've expected with them without vaccinations. So you have all these great numbers here. Vaccinations are trending in the right directions. Some of the new data that is coming in is coming in from the booster shots. Those are not being counted as adding to the, the partial or full vaccination numbers. They're just more vaccine doses that we're administering. So that is a good thing. Um, the thing to watch about that, though, in the coming in coming days and weeks as more and more people start getting those booster shots, uh, that's going to increase the number of vaccinations that we're administering. So you might see the Biden administration praise a higher um, rate, a daily rate of vaccines going out the door, which is good in, in its own unique way. But in reality, what you really, really want here are the people who are unvaccinated becoming at least partially vaccinated and, and preferably fully vaccinated here. So the more you eat into that number, the better. And the reason you have to do that is because you don't know, uh, you, you just don't know how many of these people actually have a form of natural immunity in the remaining group. That is impossible to determine. So as a public health policy, you just have to target everyone and try to get as many of these out the door as possible. Uh, but the, the main culprit and the main threat ahead of us is the incoming winter surge. Uh, it, it's one of the things we just, we know it's coming. Uh, we've seen we, we're already beginning to see hints of it in some of the northern states where you're seeing you're seeing surges start to pop up here. So in 2020, the winter surge with the first variant, the first version of covid, which was is now called the alpha variant. It was very bad. It was the worst surge of the virus that we've had yet. 
and he, he just he just ran roughshod across the entire country. Every people talk about how the spring and the summer were bad in 2020, but that winter surge was unique in that it topped both of those surges, and then some, uh, and quite a bit some on that front. So. Uh, the last time when we talked about COVID-19 numbers, I talked about one of the things that I was, you know, I talked about what I was wrong about. One of the things that I was wrong about was I was wrong about the timeline of the Delta surge during the summer. I believed when I looked at the data from last year that you would see, we would definitely see a surge during this period of time, but it would, that it would peak at some point in early to maybe mid-August at the latest. Instead, everything peaked at the beginning of September, and now we're just now starting to come down from those highs. So what this means is that when last year, when you saw things taper off after that summer surge, there was this down period here where things weren't as bad, and you sort of bottomed out again. And so when things ramped back up, they were ramping out from those lows that we had established. COVID never went away. It's just worse in some cases than others. And so one of my concerns as we're heading into the fall here is that we're not going to have that that really nice climb down. And that's because when you look at the calendar for last year, the COVID-19 winter surge started on a national basis, essentially on October 1st. Now, regionally, it had flared a little bit before that, but truly, when you start seeing it show up in the national numbers, where there's just so much of it that it's showing up everywhere, that was essentially on October 1st, 2020. And it was a slow ramp up at first. Uh, you, you didn't really notice it. But when you look at that and you look at those numbers, you see it's, it spreads really starting from that point. And once you hit the mid to later parts of October 2020, it was a ski ramp straight up that did not come down until January. So it was effectively two and a half months of just nonstop COVID growth. Um, There was really very little good news during that period of time. And so we are heading towards that part. I mean, we're at the end of September here, and we're talking about just coming off highs of the summer surge. And if this thing follows a similar pattern before where it starts to ramp back up in the first week or two here of October, then we're really not going to have a down period. We're going to have a time where we come off the peak highs of the Delta summer surge before ramping up and heading into whatever this thing has in store for the winter. And I'm not trying to scaremonger here. I'm just trying to paint a picture of what the data says happened last time and, and where it could go this time. Because we know from other countries that they are experiencing these sorts of things. And so we should expect to experience the same thing as well, even with our higher vaccination rates. Essentially, you have to plan at this point is if everybody is going to get this thing. So it's not just a matter of vaccinations. It's a matter of everybody's going to get it. So you get vaccinations out so that they have better outcomes. Um, This is also why the Biden administration's refusal to do anything for to expand treatment options like like some of the 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 monoclonal options, I believe it is just everything like that. Not expanding that was a mistake. And so we were heading into this. 
ironically enough, pretty pretty unprepared despite having vaccines. We have all these solutions here, but the Biden administration has not expanded our access to some of the things beyond vaccines, which has been a bad move to make. Instead, they just talked about, you know, oh, it's just going to be a dark winter. It's, you know, you got to prepare for this or that, but they haven't actually done anything to fix this problem. So in the spring, when you're looking at this, all this is sort of a seasonal, a seasonal thing. So when you're looking at the COVID-19 data, there's just, you see these regional uh, seasonal deals happening in it. So in the summer, you have in the South, people are more likely to be indoors just because it's so hot. And in all the northern states, people are more likely to be outside. They're, they're, they're going to be in more ventilated areas. In, in the South, we're just suffering through the heat, through especially late July through August. It's just awful. So people stay indoors. And so that gives us that seasonal bump here. That's why you see things get worse in places like Florida, because Florida has all the humidity. You may have hurricanes. You, you've just got all these things that drive people indoors in the South. But when the calendar starts flipping, you know, and, and here you're seeing the surges die down in the South here, people can get in better, well-ventilated areas. Uh, you start seeing winter show up in the fall and winter, and it starts last year when this thing spread. It started out in some of the Mountain West states and maybe in parts of the Northeast, and then spread south after that because the colder it gets, you know, it eventually forces everyone in. But there's that period there where it's harder to go out if you're up north than it is if you're down south. So you start seeing this shift happening. It's very seasonal. Um, the timing is just, you know, when does it hit? How does it spread? It's always a little different. It just, it does happen. So uh, that's kind of what happens in the summer and the winter. In the spring, uh, the northern and northeastern, the Pacific Northwest, all those states, they sort of have sort of a mini second winter there where they're all still indoors, where everybody else is getting out and across the south. So that's why you see that surge in those areas during that time. Uh, whereas, you know, in the South, everything is opening back up. So uh, there's all this seasonality that you sort of have to factor in. And then there's these little mini surges that happen regionally. Like we, we, we really don't know this past spring why it was particularly so bad in Michigan when compared to everywhere else. Everyone over the summer talked about Florida, Florida, Florida. I mean, but, you know, Florida would just kind of follow the seasonal trend line. You, you don't really have any idea. This is happening everywhere in different ways. Michigan is the weird state to me. I, I never really have understood why it alone flared up in the spring while we were getting the vaccination rolled out, just, just going. And so there's all kinds of weird and quirky things like that. So that's kind of what you've got to look at in the data when you're, when you're examining it. Um, even now, though, as numbers have started to come down nationally, two areas are still seeing a surge. So first, there's been a, a COVID-19 surge in places like Idaho, Montana, and, and Wyoming. And, they, you know, they're smaller cases. So when I saw it say surge, the numbers aren't huge. But for them, these are big surges just because it eats into a large part of their population. So you kind of have to think of it in that way. They don't have the kind of population numbers where they're going to impact a national number. But when you put them into a comparison of a per, 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 bleh, sorry, in a per capita basis, when you're examining them across 100,000 people, that, that sort of thing, uh, the surge looks far worse because you can more directly compare it to other states that way. So they are seeing a surge, which should make some level of sense because that's where the winter is going to start kicking in a little bit more regularly there. Uh, we're also seeing a surge in places like uh, like Vermont. 
up in the northeast. You're seeing things cool down there, so you you know you you see that same trend. But the interesting thing here is, whereas with you know your your Idaho's and Montana's um, that have low vaccination rates, Vermont has a high one. So these are not hitting these states in the same way. Uh, the end of the other area I want to hit real quick before we talk about that though. The, the other area where there is a distinct spread is in Kentucky and West Virginia. I think this is sort of spillover from the south because here in Tennessee, we had that too. It sort of moved west to east, and then it got into the mountains, and it's sort of been spreading through Appalachia ever since. So I expect the Kentucky-West Virginia area to abate soonish, kind of like the rest of the south. But this is also another way to say, you know, these are markers of places that are seeing a high surge right as we're entering the fall. You don't want to be at a peak right now because winter is still to come. So that's sort of what to think through. Think through there because the winter surge is just going to be everywhere. There, there's no escaping it. There's no getting around it. It's just going to be everywhere. And when you're looking at some of these other states, so you have, like, you know, I mentioned the Idaho and Montana's, you have... Local reports out of Idaho saying that funeral homes are, are are no longer they no longer have room to process the dead there, resulting from COVID nineteen. Uh, you have I you know I mentioned they have some of the lowest vaccination rates. You, that's also true of Montana, Wyoming, and so when you look at those states, you're seeing the same thing we've seen in some of these other states with low vaccination rates. Influxes into the hospital, more death than you'd expect, and it spreads more easily. When you look at a Vermont or some of these other states with higher vaccination rates, as the numbers have started going up, it's a different impact. There's no, there's not the same impact on the hospitals. There's not the same impact on the death rates. So this winter surge we've got coming up here, you know, the summer was bad, but the winter surge is going to be different because it's truly going to be a, a, a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And they are really going to be at the top of the list here because that's where it's going to spread. And it's going to spread everywhere, all 50 states. That's just how this thing works. We're seeing it spread in places that have high vaccination rates. So the vaccines are doing their job. Um, they're slowing it down and they're preventing people from ending up in a hospital. But back, but you're still seeing the virus spread in all, in all these states. So... That's why you've just got to protect everybody because you just have to assume now as a public health policy that everybody's going to get it. That's the only thing you can do. That's the only thing you can plan on. And that's the the way you have to treat it. Um, And and the vaccinated states will largely be fine through this. And the unvaccinated ones will not. That's, That's what the data in other countries are saying. That's what the early data out of some of these states are saying. And it's really hard to avoid that conclusion when you're looking at all the states together. I know it's already happened once once with the summer, but there's still just so many unvaccinated people out there that gives this thing room to grow. So I would love um, I would love for natural immunity and vaccines to kick in to sort of prevent another winter surge. I hope I'm wrong on that. Um, that has not happened yet. So I, you know you just can't plan on that to be true. I would love for some form of herd immunity to kick in and prevent another winter viral spread, but it's just nearly impossible to figure out what kind of actual herd immunity we have at the moment. I've tried, I've guessed, I've you know, you've run numbers, I've seen models, and none of them have quite been able to put a finger on exactly what this is. So 
at this point, you just, like I said, you just have to assume that everyone's going to get COVID-19. It's just a matter of whether or not you're vaccinated or not, or have some form of immunity, natural immunity, to fight this thing off. And to sort of to drive home the impact of this thing uh, globally here, the Wall Street Journal had a piece about how there are now more than one million children without parents due to COVID-19. Uh, they ran. I'm just pulling some quotes out of this because they they go and interview people here who are dealing with it, and some of the stories are just straight up heartbreaking. Um, the numbers I were what I was mainly reading it for, and they they were even worse. I mean, some of these stories they tell are just heartbreaking. But this is what they said: The Wall Street Journal reports a year and a half into COVID-19, the COVID-19 pandemic, contagious variants have been killing many in the prime of parenthood, a group that remains mostly unvaccinated in many parts of the world. From March 2020 to April 2021. An estimated 1.1 million children lost a primary caregiver to the virus, according to a recent study in the medical journal The Lancet. Many of the most affected countries are in Latin America, which accounts for about one-third of the coronavirus deaths, despite having just 8% of the global population. On a per capita basis, Peru has been the hardest hit, with an estimated 10.2 children per 1,000 losing a primary caregiver, according to the study published in The Lancet. Mexico, Brazil, and Colombia are also in the study's top five. And, you know, we've seen some border issues here in the United States. I mean, a lot of this is is really coming to a head even with that. So in the, in the Wall Street Journal continues, they say on Thursday, Mexico's Agency for Child Welfare published a study estimating that 118,362 children in Mexico lost at least one parent. That's a lot. That is a whole lot. In India, more than 75,000 children lost either one or both parents to COVID-19 between April and July of 2020, according to the National Commission of Protection of Child Rights. The state of Maharashtra, which is in Mumbai, had more than 13,000 children affected, the organization said in an affidavit to the Supreme Court. I'll link to this story in the show notes. It, it's longer. It's quite impactful to read. Uh, it's just, it is heartbreaking to see these types of, of numbers. These, this is the real long-term impact here where you're seeing just families ripped apart by this thing. I was reading a local story here in Tennessee where a police officer died from COVID-19, and he, he was in a community that was just struck by an awful flooding disaster, and now he dies from COVID-19, and he's going to leave behind a wife and five children. And so that's just sort of this continuing thing here, where this thing is ripping through community after community. I had, I've had i had more friends reporting this week just on social media that they were losing family members or friends, and the hits just keep on coming in. It is unlike anything I have ever seen. The stories are just truly relentless on this front. And until immunity is high enough, these kinds of stories will just keep on coming in. And the only way to to put a dent in that type of thing are the vaccines. That's what fixes this long term. And you know, we have some awesome therapeutics. We have some you know, we have some other uh, medications in the pipeline that are coming down that I think some of them should just go ahead and be approved now, based on what I've read. Uh, but with this administration, there's just no promise they're going to do that. They are not focused in an Operation Warp Speed type mentality where you're trying to crank out every last single option available and get them to your fingers so you can you can slow this down. Basically, the Biden administration sees the vaccines as the only way out, and they've refused to do anything else. So this is sheer mismanagement 
on their part. And that's one of many reasons why I say you just have to get vaccinated at this point, because the the various types of pharma, pharmaceutical options that could be out there right now are being limited by an administration that does not know how to think larger. And because they can't dream larger than what we can do, which is what was happening under Operation Warp Speed, we are now not growing from the point of where we were. I, I expected us to be much further along. Had you told me in January, when we were talking about being getting Pfizer approved, when we were talking about getting Moderna approved, and then Johnson and Johnson, and then I was looking on, you know, you can go back and listen to any podcast or anything I wrote during then. I assumed we were going to approve AstraZeneca, that we'd approve Novavax, maybe miraculously find another vaccine, and that we'd approve all of those. We would swamp the system here with vaccines, get them out to nations around us. And then you could focus in on more of these therapeutics to improve conditions in the hospital. I assumed all that would happen, almost as a given, just because that framework was already there. And that has not that has stopped happening. The, the innovation that Operation Warp Speed brought to the table that forced these agencies to think bigger and, and plan larger is no longer there. I mean... You have the Biden administration fighting these people over booster shots, and I don't necessarily think, I mean, you don't really need booster shots. Um, I get why they're doing it. I I get the reason why scientists are quitting over, you know, giving people booster shots. There, there's, there's arguments to be made here, but that's not where our time and resources need to be spent. Not at all. I mean, we should have approved two, at least two more vaccines. We should have had child vaccines ready to go by July, and the fact that there's been no urgency on that is is just re- appalling. It is truly appalling that parents who want to give their children this so that they can attend schools and get you know be able to ignore all these stupid mandates cannot do that. Cannot do it at all. And again, by now I thought we would be talking about Joe Biden's vaccination mandate from the Labor Department through OSHA, which he promised that he would do, and still. We have nothing. Now, maybe we'll have it by the time you listen to this episode, but I'll note this. On Tuesday, on Tuesday, that will mark three weeks since Biden announced that vaccination mandate through OSHA. And if we don't have it by Tuesday, it'll be three weeks from which he, you know, he hammered again and again. It's urgent, urgent, urgent. We do all these various things, and he's coming up dry on this thing. And this is going to be his signature thing. This will be Biden's signature contribution to our pandemic response. It's going to be this mandate because he's done very little on anything else. And he's not shown up here so far, which makes me think they they had no plan. They just made an announcement and decided they would make it up later. Uh, but, But this is where we are. So... I, you know, and I guess that's that's where we'll leave you because on this point, because I don't have a ton to add more to add here. It's just that the numbers are trending in the right direction. There are some regional flare-ups that suggest that an early winter surge is coming, and as a result, because of the ineptness of this administration, we really do have to push vaccinations because they are not prepared for. Even if we just had a surge on par with what happened last winter. When we didn't have vaccinations, we didn't have anything. If we had a surge like that, that we already know how to deal with, they would fail to respond correctly. 
So that is what we're facing here. That's one of many reasons why I've been pushing vaccinations, making sure that you have some kind of immunity, because we're about to head into another winter surge here. We don't know if it'll be bad. We don't know if it'll be, you know, we may just go sail through this no problem at all, which would be the best situation at all. But so far, we haven't hit one of those patches where everything goes just right. And with this administration, I don't think you should go into that type of situation with just your natural immunity planning to beat COVID because this thing doesn't play and this is an inept administration to deal with. And you just kind of have to be prepared and have those insurance plans in place because this administration doesn't know what it's doing. It is abundantly clear to me they have no idea what they're doing and it is not a good sign to be heading into more than 18 months down the road here and know for a fact that your leadership doesn't know what they're doing in the middle of a pandemic. So I guess that's a light, cheery note that I'll leave you on. I don't believe they know what they're doing, and we're heading into another winter surge. You know, great way to end that, I guess. Uh, but like I said at the top, your light item segment, which, uh, which I hope is a little bit lighter, I wanted to highlight the period where we were 13 years ago when the 2008 recession kicked off. Um, If you look at the actual data, we were in a recession for most of 2008, but politically, everything truly hit the fan in late September, specifically on September 14th, 2008. That was when Lehman Brothers had to file and announce for that they were getting bankruptcy protection. And on September 14th, that's when the markets went to to a tailspin. Um, I've been thinking about that because China has a similar company named uh, Evergrande, Evergrande maybe, I think that's how you may pronounce it. Um, But they are struggling to make their own debt payments at the moment, and they're talking about having to bail them out and or the potential of them failing. And none of that's happened yet, but there's concerns that if this company does fail, um, the Evergrande, it would cause similar economic issues that the Lehman, in, in China, that the Lehman Brothers caused in the United States. So it could have reverberation impacts and all that's unknown right now um it's just kind of interesting that it's all occurring 13 years after the lehman brothers collapse and which really triggered the true economic collapse of the united states in 2008 Um, because you know after lehman brothers announced that on september 14th that was basically you can circle that date on the calendar because that was basically the day john mccain lost the presidential race um, the club polls were close up to that point, including, I mean, some of them even had McCain leading after the convention was over, but he was scrambling after that and did not know what to do. He never understood economic issues. They were never a strong point for him. Um, Obama was very good at talking about those and, and knew who to call and talk to to educate himself real quick. He took a crash course on, you know, both candidates were doing that, but Obama actually, it all stuck with him and gave him at least a presence of mind of what to do. Um, and then 10 days after you, after you know the 7th to 14th collapse of Lehman Brothers, uh, George W. Bush came out and had to give a speech trying to reassure everyone because you had this immediate credit crunch. People couldn't couldn't apply for loans. You know you couldn't get a house at that point. It was it was truly a mess. And so this is his speech on September 24th, 2008. And this is after the markets and economy were collapsing around everyone. So he's trying to reassure people and make them feel better. So here is George W. Bush. Good evening. This is an extraordinary period for America's economy. Over the past few weeks, many Americans have felt anxiety about their finances and their future. I understand their worry and their frustration. We've seen triple-digit swings in the stock market. Major financial institutions have teetered on the edge of collapse, and some have failed. 
As uncertainty has grown, many banks have restricted lending, credit markets have frozen, and families and businesses have found it harder to borrow money. We are in the midst of a serious financial crisis, and the federal government is responding with decisive action. We boosted confidence in money market mutual funds and acted to prevent major investors from intentionally driving down stocks for their own personal gain. Most importantly, my administration is working with Congress to address the root cause behind much of the instability in our markets. Financial assets related to home mortgages have lost value during the housing decline, and the banks holding these assets have restricted credit. As a result, our entire economy is in danger. So I propose that the federal government reduce the risk posed by these troubled assets and supply urgently needed money so banks and other financial institutions can avoid collapse and resume lending. This rescue effort is not aimed at preserving any individual company or industry. It is aimed at preserving America's overall economy. It will help American consumers and businesses get credit to meet their daily needs and create jobs. And it will help send a signal to markets around the world that America's financial system is back on track. I know many Americans have questions tonight. How did we reach this point in our economy? How will the solution I propose work? And what does this mean for your financial future? These are good questions, and they deserve clear answers. First, how did our economy reach this point? Well, most economists agree that the problems we are witnessing today developed over a long period of time. For more than a decade, a massive amount of money flowed into the United States from investors abroad because our country is an attractive and secure place to do business. This large influx of money to U.S. banks and financial institutions, along with low interest rates, made it easier for Americans to get credit. These developments allowed more families to borrow money for cars and homes and college tuition, some for the first time. They allowed more entrepreneurs to get loans to start new businesses and create jobs. Unfortunately, there were also some serious negative consequences, particularly in the housing market. Easy credit combined with the faulty assumption that home values would continue to rise led to excesses and bad decisions. Many mortgage lenders approved loans for borrowers without carefully examining their ability to pay. Many borrowers took out loans larger than they could afford assuming that they could sell or refinance their homes at a higher price later on. Optimism about housing values also led to a boom in home construction. Eventually, the number of new houses exceeded the number of people willing to buy them. And with supply exceeding demand, housing prices fell. And this created a problem. Borrowers with adjustable rate mortgages who had been planning to sell or refinance their homes at a higher price were stuck with homes worth less than expected, along with mortgage payments they could not afford. As a result, many mortgage holders began to default. These widespread defaults had effects far beyond the housing market. See, in today's mortgage industry, home loans are often packaged together and converted into financial products called mortgage-backed securities. These securities were sold to investors around the world. Many investors assumed these securities were trustworthy and asked a few questions about their actual value. Two of the leading purchasers of mortgage-backed securities were Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Because these companies were chartered by Congress, 
Many believed they were guaranteed by the federal government. This allowed them to borrow enormous sums of money, fuel the market for questionable investments, and put our financial system at risk. The decline in the housing market set off a domino effect across our economy. When home values declined, borrowers defaulted on their mortgages, and investors holding mortgage-backed securities began to incur serious losses. Before long, these securities became so unreliable that they were not being bought or sold. Investments banks such as Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers found themselves saddled with large amounts of assets they could not sell. They ran out of money needed to meet their immediate obligations, and they faced imminent collapse. Other banks found themselves in severe financial trouble. These banks began holding on to their money, and lending dried up, and the gears of the American financial system began grinding to a halt. With the situation becoming more precarious by the day, I faced a choice, to step in with dramatic government action, or to stand back and allow the irresponsible actions of some to undermine the financial security of all. I'm a strong believer in free enterprise, so my natural instinct is to oppose government intervention. I believe companies that make bad decisions should be allowed to go out of business. Under normal circumstances, I would have followed this course. But these are not normal circumstances. The market is not functioning properly. There has been a widespread loss of confidence, and major sectors of America's financial system are at risk of shutting down. The government's top economic experts warn that without immediate action by Congress, America could slip into a financial panic and a distressing scenario would unfold. More banks could fail, including some in your community. The stock market would drop even more, which would reduce the value of your retirement account. The value of your home could plummet. Foreclosures would rise dramatically. And if you own a business or a farm, you would find it harder and more expensive to get credit. More businesses would close their doors, and millions of Americans could lose their jobs. Even if you have good credit history, it would be more difficult for you to get the loans you need to buy a car or send your children to college. And ultimately, our country could experience a long and painful recession. Fellow citizens, we must not let this happen. I appreciate the work of leaders of, from both parties and both houses of Congress to address this problem and to make improvements to the proposal my administration sent to them. There is a spirit of cooperation between Democrats and Republicans and between Congress and this administration. In that spirit, I've invited Senators McCain and Obama to join congressional leaders of both parties at the White House tomorrow to help speed our discussions toward a bipartisan bill. I know that an economic rescue package will present a tough vote for many members of Congress. It is difficult to pass a bill that commits so much of the taxpayers' hard-earned money. I also understand the frustration of responsible Americans who pay their mortgages on time, file their tax returns every April 15th, and are reluctant to pay the cost of excesses on Wall Street. But given the situation we are facing, not passing a bill now would cost these Americans much more later. Many Americans are asking, how would a rescue plan work? After much discussion, there is now widespread agreement on the principles such a plan would include. It would remove the risk posed by the troubled assets, including mortgage-backed securities, now clogging the financial system. This would free banks to resume the flow of credit to American families and businesses. 
Any rescue plan should also be designed to ensure that taxpayers are protected. It should welcome the participation of financial institutions, large and small. It should make certain that failed executives do not receive a windfall from your tax dollars. It should establish a bipartisan board to oversee the plan's implementation. And it should be enacted as soon as possible. In close consultation with Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson, Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke, and SEC Chairman Chris Cox, I announced a plan on Friday. First, the plan is big enough to solve a serious problem. Under our proposal, the federal government would put up to $700 billion taxpayer dollars on the line to purchase troubled assets that are clogging the financial system. In the short term, this will free up banks to resume the flow of credit to American families and businesses. And this will help our economy grow. Second, as markets have lost confidence in mortgage-backed securities, their prices have dropped sharply. Yet the value of many of these assets will likely be higher than their current price because the vast majority of Americans will ultimately pay off their mortgages. The government is the one institution with the patience and resources to buy these assets at their current low prices and hold them until markets return to normal. And when that happens, money will flow back to the Treasury as these assets are sold, and we expect that much, if not all, of the tax dollars we invest will be paid back. The final question is, what does this mean for your economic future? Well, the primary steps, purpose of the steps I've outlined tonight is to safeguard the financial security of American workers and families and small businesses. The federal government also continues to enforce laws and regulations protecting your money. The Treasury Department recently offered government insurance for money market mutual funds. And through the FDIC, every savings account checking account and certificate of deposit is insured by the federal government for up to $100,000. The FDIC has been in existence for 75 years and no one has ever lost a penny on an insured deposit and this will not change. Once this crisis is resolved, there will be time to update our financial regulatory structures. Our 21st century global economy remains regulated largely by outdated 20th century laws. Recently, we've seen how one company can grow so large that its failure jeopardizes the entire financial system. Earlier this year, Secretary Paulson proposed a blueprint that would modernize our financial regulations. For example, the Federal Reserve would be authorized to take a closer look at the operations of companies across the financial spectrum and ensure that their practices do not threaten overall financial stability. There are other good ideas and members of Congress should consider them. As they do, they must ensure that efforts to regulate Wall Street do not end up hampering our economy's ability to grow. In the long run, Americans have good reason to be confident in our economic strength. Despite corrections in the marketplace and instances of abuse, democratic capitalism is the best system ever devised. It has unleashed the talents and the productivity and entrepreneurial spirit of our citizens. It has made this country the best place in the world to invest and do business. And it gives our economy the flexibility and resilience to absorb shocks, adjust, and bounce back. Our economy is facing a moment of great challenge. But we've overcome tough challenges before, and we will overcome this one. I know that Americans sometimes get discouraged by the tone in Washington and the seemingly endless partisan struggles. 
Yet history has shown that in times of real trial, elected officials rise to the occasion. And together we will show the world once again what kind of country America is, a nation that tackles problems head on, where leaders come together to meet great tests, and where people of every background can work hard, develop their talents, and realize their dreams. Thank you for listening. May God bless you. So there was George W. Bush giving that that speech. Um, an interesting note. So he was uh, he he was he, they had just made that proposal to Congress. They were really seeking to pass something that week, uh, as soon as possible, really. And Congress was deadlocked across the board. They could not decide what to do. And the proposal that they ended up putting forth ended up failing. In spectacular fashion, House Republicans shot it down. Uh, John Boehner tried to push them through, but they, House Republicans refused to buckle. Um, the The meeting after well, so after after that failure, uh, you then have Congress ended up having to pass a bill after that failure because the markets crashed immediately. I mean, you could have watched there were there there are videos on YouTube you can stick it up and then they have the vote counters and as soon as it's clear that that thing is going to fail in the house they just falls off a cliff. And there are house Republicans who talked about it. This is in Boehner's book actually where he talks about watching that happening and, and trying to get it through to some of the house Republicans head that they had to do something. Because crash was imminent. There, there was, you'd either do something here to try to regain some confidence or the crash happened. And the crash happened anyway. They passed something. It continued to crash because it was too late at that point. So uh, that, that's what happened after Bush's speech. And the media thing that happened after he mentions the McCain and Obama meeting, um, that was not his idea. That was actually something that McCain had pitched where he wanted to do this bipartisan thing where maybe he would get out one of one of the debates they would have this big meeting in washington and try to put together a deal um, the problem was that john mccain had no idea how economics or any kind of economic policy worked it wasn't his strong point his deal was always foreign policy he understood that he never understood economic policy and so when he asked for that it was totally a political ploy because he did not have a way to drive a bargain. He didn't know what was happening in Congress at the time. He didn't have a plan. And he was really just relying on everyone else to actually have had something that he could help push forward. And so when the actual meeting came, he just sat there and like and did nothing. So, I mean, when I talk about September 14th being when McCain lost the race, I do truly mean it. That is the exact moment in time where he lost the race because it was close, but then when this became the story, he immediately lost. Um, Bush tried to push him along as best as he could, but he was at this point trying to tri- put, triage this thing and get this across the board. He eventually got Congress to pass the hard, one of some of the hardest parts of this that that no one wanted to do, and then gave the top portions of this to the Obama administration to pass on the back side of that. Um, and, I, and I've long said that for the Republican Party that they have never dealt with the fallout of September 14th, 2020, oh, not 2021, 2008. Uh, they've never dealt with the fallout of Lehman Brothers and what happened at that moment. Because that, for, for me, that is really when I think you see politically uh, Reaganism on economics, supply-side economics, that's truly when it failed. 
That is when people believe that it failed on a political level, and they've never trusted Republicans really since. And that's that's where you give somebody like Donald Trump a lane to come in, because Republicans never dealt with that exact fallout. It was all heaped on Bush, fairly or not, but it was right there, and he had to respond to it. So... And frankly, no, Obama never dealt with the fallout of this because he ended up spending most of his capital. I mean, he basically took TARP and all that and passed all of that. That way he wanted to get all that out of the way and then immediately pivoted using his congressional majorities to focus on passing a massive health care boondoggle of a bill in the form of Obamacare or otherwise known as the Affordable Care Act, its true name. Um and so you have the, the just the, the when you're looking at the failures of both parties here, uh, that date September 14th 2008 is a big one. That is when everything really failed. And in the outgrowth of that, you end up getting the Occupy Wall Street movement on the left, which leads to democratic socialism, getting new life on the left. Um, it, it wasn't anything at the time. It had to grow over time into something political because it had no political strength then. On the right, you had the big immediate push of the Tea Party movement, and that ends up leading to Donald Trump down the line, and where people were reacting in the Tea Party movement to those bailouts. Um, there was a Rick Santelli rant on CNBC that went viral, one of those first early uh, viral videos, and that, that was his, and it kicks off the Tea Party movement. And so... That date, I think, still reverberates. Uh, you can, you can. It's obviously very quiet there with that Bush speech. You can hear the squeaking on the lectern where he's moving around. It wasn't a comfortable topic for him because this was not a strong suit for him. It was. It's. It, it's. This is not a strong suit of anybody in Congress. And so it took. It basically took until Donald Trump's administration where we we really saw ourselves crawl out of the hole of what happened in 2008, which is really saying something. You're talking eight years later before you can really say we finally moved beyond that. Uh, And and all that stuff still reverberates. So kind of interesting to, to, to listen to that speech and think about everything that has happened since then. That's all I've got for today's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the contact information in the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning, so make sure to sign up before that and you will get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I will see you guys in the next episode. 